If you're a politics junkie, you need to be listening to the Election Ride Home podcast. Every day at 5 p.m., former This American Life contributor Chris Higgins reports from the campaign trail. Who's up? Who's down? What issues are getting traction and what do the polls say? Search your podcast app now for Ride Home and subscribe to the Election Ride Home podcast. Depression comes to all of us at times. I know personally, as I suffer from depression myself and have most of my life, But if you can't seem to get out of it, you're not alone. Call 1-800-273-8255. They'll show you a way out of your depression, even if you're trying to deal with it through drugs or alcohol. With the FMLA, you can take a leave of absence from your job and return to it once you've found help. Call 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Welcome, Weirdos! This is a special Weekend Archive episode of Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved and unexplained. If you have a dark tale to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss future uploads. And if you're already a fan of the show, please help spread the word about the podcast. Share a link to this episode with a couple of your friends and on your social media. And thanks in advance for doing so. Now, Bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weekend archives of Weird Darkness. In this episode, I have a guest narrator, Hellfreezer, will bring us a story called He Thought I Killed Him. But first, author Troy Taylor takes us to the Ohio State Reformatory and tells us about a certain key to a cell door. On the outskirts of the small town of Mansfield, Ohio, is a gloomy, gothic structure that was for many years the Ohio State Reformatory. Designed as a prison for criminals who were too old for the boys' industrial school in Lancaster and not hardened enough for the Ohio Penitentiary in Columbus, the Reformatory saw untold thousands of prisoners during its years of operations once applauded as a place that could humanely reform first-time offenders, the conditions deteriorated to the point that it became known more for abuse, torture, and murder than for its early successes. It's been closed down now since the end of the 1980s, but those who cross the threshold of this place can assure you that the prison is far from empty. The campaign to build a prison in Mansfield began during the years of the Civil War, but it was not until 1884 
that the state legislature actually approved the creation of a prison that would serve as an intermediate place of incarceration for Ohio lawbreakers. Using land that had served as one of Manfield's two Civil War camps, the city raised $10,000 to purchase the land and the state acquired the more than 150 acres that adjoined it. The cornerstone of the prison was placed on November 4, 1886 and marked a day of great celebration in the city. A crowd of more than 15,000 turned out for the event and it featured a parade that started in Mansfield which was decorated with flags and bunting and ended at the new building site. A number of dignitaries were present for the celebration, including former President Rutherford B. Hayes, Senator John Sherman, Governor J.B. Foraker, and General Roloff Brinkenhoff, the man who led the drive to have the prison built in Mansfield. Cleveland architect Levi T. Schofield was hired to design the reformatory, which was expected to cost about $1.3 million to build. According to reports, he based his design on sketches of castles in Germany. Numerous funding problems in the years that followed caused so many delays that the reformatory was not able to accept its first group of inmates until 1896, a full 10 years after work at the site began. The prison officially opened on September 17 when 150 inmates were transferred to the new facility from the Ohio Penitentiary. The transfer drew almost as much attention as the original groundbreaking did. Large crowds turned out in Columbus to watch the inmates, dressed in prison stripes, march from the penitentiary to the train station. The prisoners, entertained by the attention, waved and made jokes to the crowds as they passed. Men along the route even passed out cigars to the inmates as they walked by them. The train was greeted by another large crowd when it stopped in Galleon, before continuing on to Mansfield. People in town cheered as the men were unloaded at the northwest corner of the reformatory and were taken directly to their cells. The inmates were immediately set to work. The reformatory was still far from finished and the convicts were used to complete the sewer system and other parts of the structure. Construction was not fully completed until 1910. Reform, rather than punishment, was the main goal of the Ohio State Reformatory when it was conceived. Education was one of the focal points. Classes were held at the reformatory and the students were taught the very fundamentals of education with the belief that so many of them had committed crimes because they lacked the basic knowledge needed to live an upstanding life. At one time, there were more than 1,600 men and boys who were students at the reformatory and they were trained by 16 teachers, learning subjects like math, reading, English, economy, history, and geography. In 1925, Chief Engineer W.P. Close organized classes for drafting and engineering so that inmates could learn a solid skill or trade. In 1928, plumbing, welding, and steam fitting were added to the curriculum. Other trade classes that were introduced included broom making, bricklaying, stone cutting, and other activities. Extracurricular activities like music, debate, drama and sports were also added to boost the young men's confidence and keep them from turning back to a life of crime. The Ohio State Reformatory's goal was to help a man develop his full character. Not every man could be reformed, of course, but all of them would be better prepared for life outside of the reformatory. 
the inmates learned the various trades in shops that were scattered about the grounds of the reformatory. The initial work done by the inmates was the sewer construction that was mentioned previously. They also built a 25-foot stone wall behind the main building. As time went on, they were employed at farm work, building roads and carrying out other improvements for the facility. All of the brick buildings added to the institution, as well as the steel cell blocks, were built by inmate labor. There were also five industries on the site that were involved in printing, making shoes, clothing, furniture, and machines. The furniture factory opened in 1912 and produced high-quality items that were known for their expert handiwork and beautiful finishes. More than 150 inmates worked there at one time, and in 1931 alone they produced over 18,000 pieces of furniture. The reformatory's print shop made many state college annuals and catalogs and employed 140 inmates. The machine shop, using at least 75 inmates, made chair clips used in the furniture factory, typewriter desk mechanisms, and steel beds for hospitals and institutions. The shoe factory made various types for men, women, and children, with styles that ranged from Oxfords to high heels for women and men's waterproof work boots. The clothing factory made regulation uniforms for the inmates, officer uniforms and clothing for children's homes and orphanages across the state of Ohio. This industry employed about 250 inmates, and the building where it was located housed 85 sewing machines, steam pressing equipment, and special machines for buttonholes and seams. Some of the inmates worked at the farm dormitory, which was located between the reformatory and the barns. The farm dormitory was an outside annex to the main prison and usually employed about 250 trustees, prisoners given special privileges because of good behavior, who had duties to be carried out at the poultry farm, dairy, and hog barns. Much of the food for the reformatory was produced there. Although never fully self-supporting, this industry grew rapidly and was praised by prison officials. By 1934, the reformatory was able to grow and raise most of the food needed for the inmates. If an inmate was sick during his time at the reformatory, he visited the prison hospital. It was a 90-bed facility that employed a full staff of doctors, nurses, and other personnel like an anesthetist, several specialists, clerks, cooks, and surgical help. The hospital was three stories high and extended off the east cell block in a northward direction. The kitchen was located on the first floor, along with a dentist's office, record office, and surgical dispensary room. On the second floor were doctor's offices, storage and drug rooms, an x-ray and surgical room, and more private rooms. On the third floor were private rooms, a large medical ward, baths, a linen area, and a room for highly contagious patients. The contagious ward was frequently in use. The biggest health threat of the early 20th century was the same as in many other facilities across the country at the time – tuberculosis. It was highly contagious, and until the introduction of medicines that could treat the disease in the 1940s, it killed thousands of people every year. Hardest hit were large facilities where the illness went untreated until it was too late. The tuberculosis ward at the reformatory was large and airy. It was believed at the time that the best cure was fresh air, and was often filled with patients. Space there was usually at a premium. The death toll from the illness eventually began to drop after vaccines were developed to treat the disease. 
one of the most important processes that the hospital was involved in was the initial exam of new inmates. Each new arrival would be stripped, bathed, deloused, and outfitted in a prison uniform after the exam was completed. Each man was checked for communicable diseases and physical ailments, and a chart would be created for him. Blood tests for various diseases, disorders, and sexually transmitted diseases were performed. Any vaccines needed would also be administered at this time. Large amounts of linens were used in the hospital and throughout the reformatory each week. By the 1930s, 72 inmates worked each day to wash the nearly 75,000 pieces of linen that were used each week. The main dining room at the reformatory was another area that saw a tremendous amount of weekly activity. It could seat 1,760 prisoners at one time, and tables could be cleared within 50 minutes. The baker could turn out 15,000 loaves of bread every day, and 12,000 pounds of butter were churned weekly. The food was plain, but it was substantial. The men were fed well, cared for physically, and their needs were met spiritually too. When a man entered the reformatory, his religious preference was noted and he was informed when church services were held for his faith. Each new inmate was presented with a book on the rules of conduct by the chaplain on staff. He was not only the spiritual advisor to the inmates, but he also wrote for and supervised the reformatory's newspaper, The New Day. The reformatory had its own cemetery on the grounds. The more than 200 numbered headstones remain in place today. Many died of old age, disease, or worse. The cemetery also includes the graves of those who died from unnatural causes like murder and suicide, and those whose bodies went unclaimed by family after their demise. Life at the reformatory changed over the years, mostly according to the type of inmate that it housed. The original purpose of the reformatory was to teach, enlighten, and reform young male prisoners so that they could be returned to society as hard-working, honest individuals who had been swayed toward the right side of the law. Unfortunately, this philosophy changed as the years passed by, and more and more hardened criminals found themselves behind the reformatory's stone walls. For the first 50 years of its existence, the reformatory was praised as one of the best institutions of its kind in America. This changed by 1933, when overcrowding became an issue and conditions started to decline. This peaked in the 1970s with a legal case that cited the reformatory's brutal and inhumane conditions. The early dreams of reform became a nightmare, and by 1990 the prison was closed for good. But of course, that would not be the end of the story. This weekend archive of Weird Darkness returns in just a moment. I've told people numerous times in the past that if I ever own my own business and I have employees that I have to take care of, one of the job training requirements 
is having them listen to or read the book by Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It has been extremely beneficial to me through the years. I've listened to the audiobook numerous times. I've got the print book as well on my bookshelves. But it is a pretty long book. However, right now you can listen to the entire Blinkist version and it'll only take you 15 minutes. And you can listen to it absolutely free with a seven-day trial to Blinkist. I love Blinkist. I use it every single day. And it's made for busy people like me and you who want to get the main points out of books quickly without having to read the entire book because, let's face it, we just don't have the time. Well, with an audio feature, Blinkist makes it so easy you could finish four books a day just while on your commute back and forth to work. And now they have a special deal just for Weird Darkness listeners. You can have a seven-day free trial so you can get all the books, including Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And after that seven days is up, you can still get Blinkist for 25% off if you want to continue as a subscriber. If not, you can still keep the free version of Blinkist and get a new book every single day anyway. Check it out. Go to Blinkist.com slash Weird Darkness. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Weird Darkness. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow. Weirdo family member Kitty sent me an email saying, My husband works out of state the majority of the time, and when he left, he wanted to take his MyPillow with him. That's how much he loves his. Right now, you can get two premium MyPillows for one low price. Go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code WEIRD or call 800-945-7192. That's 800-945-7192 or MyPillow.com. Promo code WEIRD. Because the reformatory was an intermediate prison designed for young offenders, it had few famous inmates during its history. At least one of them went on to great notoriety, however, proving that reform was not always possible with some offenders. The most famous former inmate was Henry Baker, one of the men convicted of pulling off the Brinks heist in 1950. The Brinks robbery was one of the carefully executed masterful jobs of the 20th century. The robbery was planned over a two-year period as 11 middle-aged men from Boston worked out every detail imaginable to steal a fortune from the Brinks North Terminal garage. They entered the garage at night and walked about in their stocking feet, measuring distances and locating and checking doors all under the noses of unsuspecting guards. On one occasion, they even removed all of the locks from the doors, fitted keys to them, and replaced the locks. They even went so far as to break into a burglar alarm company in order to take a closer look at the alarm system used by Brinks. The robbery was carried out on January 17, 1950, and the bandits entered the garage wearing Brinks uniforms rubber Halloween masks and rubber-soled shoes. They made their way to the counting room and relieved five very surprised employees of $2.7 million in cash, checks, and securities. In less than 15 minutes, they had vanished. The plan was to keep a low profile for six years until the statute of limitations ran out, but one of the bandits, Joseph Spex O'Keefe, felt that he had not received his fair share and demanded more. The others refused and then started to worry that he might turn into an informant, so they hired a professional hitman, Elmer Trigger Burke, 
to take him out. Burke missed his first opportunity and ended up chasing O'Keefe through the streets of Boston, firing at him with a machine gun. O'Keefe was wounded in the arm and chest, but escaped before Burke could finish him off. Burke was soon arrested and O'Keefe, taking offense over the fact that his friends had tried to have him killed, started talking to the law. Thanks to O'Keefe, eight of the robbers, including former Ohio State Reformatory inmate Henry Baker, were convicted and received life sentences. Some of the inmates at Mansfield didn't just commit crimes to get into prison or after they got out. Some of them actually carried on criminal operations while they were still incarcerated. On August 21, 1921, two reformatory inmates, King Williams, age 18, and John Gmetz, age 17, were charged with carrying on a counterfeiting operation while being behind bars. The plot came to the attention of the U.S. Secret Service from the superintendent of the reformatory, who acted on a tip from a trustee. The two young men had apparently been creating counterfeit bills and passing them to reformatory guards who circulated them throughout the area. Assistant Superintendent Rowe had actually caught Williams in the act of putting the finishing touches on a bogus $5 bill. Williams and Kometz were paroled in late 1921 and were immediately rearrested by federal authorities who charged them with counterfeiting. But darker crimes have occurred in the history of the reformatory as well. Two corrections officers have been murdered in the line of duty at the Ohio State Reformatory. On November 2, 1926, a paroled inmate named Philip Orlick returned to the prison to try and help a friend escape. Early that morning, he encountered a guard named Urban Wilford in the guard tower and shot and killed him. Orlick fled before his escape attempt could fail, but was apprehended two months later. He met his end in the electric chair at the Ohio State Penitentiary the following year. The second officer was Frank Hanger, who died after being beaten with an iron bar. Hanger tried to stop an escape attempt by a dozen prisoners in October 1932 and paid for it with his life. Two inmates, Merrill Chandler and Chester Proboski, were charged with the guard's murder and were sent to the electric chair in 1935. Several attempts, both failed and unsuccessful, occurred during the reformatory's history. One inmate, who worked in the shoe factory, convinced his fellow inmates to nail him inside of a large wooden crate of shoes that was being shipped out by truck. No one searched the crate as it left the reformatory, and as the truck started down the highway toward Columbus, it seemed as though the escape was going to be successful. But that success turned out to be short-lived. The truck's destination was the Ohio State Penitentiary, where the inmate was quickly apprehended and traded a cell in one institution for a cell in another. But most escapes were not so humorous, such as the one that occurred in 1936. After overpowering and beating a guard with an iron bar, five inmates attempted a daring escape on Friday, July 17. Guard A. H. Morris was making his rounds of e-dormitory around 10 p.m., when he was assaulted by four or five prisoners involved in the escape attempt. Morris was restrained while the fifth inmate beat him over the head with the bar and then grabbed his keys. Leaving Morris unconscious on the floor, they used his keys to begin moving through the facility. Four prisoners fled the dormitory and ran toward the main building, while the fifth man ran toward the highway east of the reformatory's grounds. Within minutes, the four men were spotted and a volley of warning shots from the guards on duty quickly convinced them to surrender. The fifth man vanished into the darkness that night, 
and, according to records, was never recaptured. Reformatory officials refused comment when asked the name of the prisoners involved in the escape. And this was not the first escape to occur at the Ohio State Reformatory. In November 1902, an inmate named John Gagnon escaped from the reformatory. After slipping out of the facility, he made his way into nearby Mansfield and snuck into engine house number two of the fire department. After bumping into several firemen while wearing his conspicuous gray prison uniform, they started to chase him until they realized that he might be armed. They called the reformatory and the police department instead, and soon a chase took place through an area of warehouses and industrial factories on the edge of town. Gagnon's uniform was found discarded in a hobo camp where he had switched clothes with someone and vanished. Trains were stopped and searched and reports were sent out on the telegraph wire, but it was all to no avail. John Gagnon escaped that night and was never seen again. In May 1907, a prisoner managed to escape before he even officially arrived at the reformatory. Rudolf Kurvenak, 18, had been convicted of grand larceny and was sentenced to do time at the reformatory. While traveling via train with his escort, Sheriff Robert Wells, the young convict escaped from the Pennsylvania Railroad passenger car by jumping from the train car window. Sheriff Wells secured a horse and buggy and began searching for the escaping prisoner, alerting locals as he flew through the countryside. After arriving in Lucas, Ohio, he questioned townspeople and railroad employees. One railroad operator recalled seeing a man of Kervanak's description in a nearby cemetery. When officers searched the burial ground, they found Kervanak asleep in a fenced corner with his swollen and bruised wrists still handcuffed together. He had been injured when he jumped from the train and landed on his hands and arms. Sheriff Wells shook him awake and placed him back into custody. The interrupted trip to Mansfield was completed that day, but Wells stayed very close to his prisoner during the remainder of the journey. One of the most daring escapes occurred in 1910. On the night of Tuesday, September 27, three prisoners, Joseph Stearns, George Wilson, and John McDonnell, cut their way through a steel bar to freedom. They sawed their way through a cell bar with a sharpened piece of metal bar that Stearns had smuggled out of the machine shop on the reformatory grounds. After being transferred from the machine shop to the laundry, Stearns went to work on the window bars in the laundry room restroom, which was rarely used. Following a carefully orchestrated plan, McDonald received a pass to the hospital for the treatment of jaw pain that he'd been experiencing at the same time that Wilson was quote-unquote injured in the blacksmith shop and had to visit the hospital to be patched up. The trio met up and ventured into the bathroom laundry. The window bar was removed and all three of them managed to wriggle through the opening. They dropped about 20 feet to the ground and made their way along the outside of the east wing. As they made their way across the property, their route took them right in front of the main building, but amazingly, no one saw them. They gained their freedom, but were spotted by a crew member from one of the city streetcars that ran past the reformatory, who didn't report it until later. No one even realized the three men were missing until a guard in the blacksmith shop began to think that Wilson's hospital visit had lasted a very long time. After it was discovered that he was missing, the search was started, which resulted in a headcount that revealed that Stearns and McDonnell were also gone. The alarm was sounded and the manhunt began, spreading to Mansfield and neighboring towns. It went on for more than a month, and only one of the men were ever found. 
John McDonnell was captured in Buffalo, New York on October 25, but he escaped a short time later. His method? He sawed through the metal bars and slipped out into the night. Inmate William Moore escaped from the reformatory on New Year's Day 1953. Facing between 1 and 20 years for drug possession charges, he managed to slip past his captors after serving 22 years behind bars, apparently feeling like he had done all of his time. He walked off the prison grounds and was never heard from again. On September 30, 1959, Frank Freshwater escaped after being sentenced on voluntary manslaughter charges. He was never apprehended and technically both he and William Moore are still wanted by the Ohio Department of Corrections. Perhaps the darkest days in the history of the Ohio State Reformatory came with the parole of two inmates, Robert Daniels and John West, who would forever be immortalized in newspapers as the Mad Dog Killers. In the summer of 1948, just days after being released from prison, the two young men went on a killing spree that ended with several people dead, including a guard at the reformatory and his wife and daughter. They started the spree by killing a Columbus tavern owner named Earl Ambrose on July 10, followed by Frank Fretch, an elderly tourist camp operator on July 11. After that, they drove straight to Mansfield and the Ohio State Reformatory. Robert Daniels interviewed after he was captured stated that they had gone to the prison looking for a guard named Red Harris, but when they didn't find him, they went to the home of another guard, John Nibel. Daniels told authorities, we planned the Nibel business three or four months ago. We planned to beat the hell out of him. While I was an OSR, Nibel treated me like a rat. At one time, Nibel slugged me. If they had given us just a little longer, we'd have wiped them all out, all those sons of bitches at the reformatory. Daniels and West arrived at the Nibel home around 1.30 a.m. and knocked on the door. When Nibel answered, they told him that their car had broken down when they wanted to use the telephone. He let them inside, but did not recognize the two men at first. It was not until Daniels pulled out a gun that Nibel realized the horror that he had allowed into his home. While West held a gun on Nibel, Daniels went upstairs, forced Mrs. Nolana Nibel and her 20-year-old daughter Phyllis to come downstairs. The family was forced into a light gray automobile and was driven by Daniels and West through Mansfield, around Central Park, and then out of town to Fleming's Falls Road. As they traveled, Daniels forced the Nibels to take off all of their clothes and throw them out the window. Finally, the car was stopped and the family was forced out into the lonely cornfield that would become their death site. Daniels marched them through the knee-high corn and then, forcing them to stand in a line next to one another, shot each of them in the head with an old Mauser automatic. Daniels later reported, I lined them up in the cornfield. I shot Nibel first, then I shot the girl, then I shot Mrs. Nibel. I never shoot people in the back. It's against my principles. Daniels and West fled the scene and abandoned the car they were driving. A few hours later, they were captured when they attempted to shoot it out with police and sheriff's deputies at a roadblock north of Van Wert. The blockade was set up as part of what became one of the greatest manhunts in the state's history. The newspapers calling the killing spree a 13-day reign of terror, the killers claimed their last two victims just before they were caught, driving a stolen truck that was being used to haul four brand new automobiles. James J. Smith, a newlywed farmer from Tiffin, was shot through the head when he refused to give up his driver's license. Less than an hour later, the body of another man, Orville Taylor, 
a truck driver from Niles, Michigan, was found in a roadside park near Tiffin. Taylor was believed to be the driver of the truck that the killers were driving when they were stopped. Shots were exchanged at the roadblock, and Daniels and West managed to wound a Van Wert policeman named Leonard Kahn and Frank Fremont, a Conservation Division employee, during the gunfight. It ended with West being shot dead and Daniels being taken into custody. While in jail, Daniels bragged about his exploits, and when he was brought outside to pose for news photographers, an angry mob gathered and demanded that he be turned over to them to be hanged. Officials managed to get him safely back indoors, but not before Daniels cursed the police, the photographers, and the crowd. He was later tried and convicted for the murders and took a well-deserved seat in the Ohio State Penitentiary electric chair in January 1949. If the inmates at the Ohio State Reformatory were not killing guards, they were killing each other or themselves. In 1955, a guard discovered the body of an inmate who had hanged himself in his cell. A few years later, another inmate poured a can of turpentine over himself and lit a match, setting his clothes on fire. After a prison riot occurred at the reformatory in 1957, 120 prisoners were confined to a solitary confinement area known as The Hole. This was a dank, pitch-dark place of confinement where it was rumored that several inmates had gone insane. Because there were only 20 rooms in The Hole, many of the men had to be locked into the solitary cells together for 30 days. During this time, at least one prisoner was alleged to have been murdered his body hidden by another inmate under some bedding for several days. Some blamed the condition of the prison on the mental state of some of the inmates. By the early part of the 1930s, the reformatory was already being criticized for being overcrowded and offering inhumane living quarters for the prisoners. As the years went by, the facility deteriorated even more. In the 1970s, the state declared that the Ohio State Reformatory no longer met the standards and guidelines for correctional institutes. Public outcry about the state of the prison was led by the Council for Human Dignity, a coalition of civic and church groups. In 1978, they filed a federal lawsuit on behalf of the 2,200 inmates at the reformatory, claiming that the prisoners' constitutional rights were being violated because they were forced to live in brutalizing and inhumane conditions. The lawsuit was finally resolved in 1983 with the filing of a consent decree in which prison officials agreed to improve conditions while preparing to close the cell blocks by December 31, 1986. The closing date ended up being extended for a few years, but by 1990, the reformatory was closed for good. During the final years of the prison, the only people who seemed to appreciate the crumbling prison were Hollywood movie makers. While the reformatory was still in operation, two movies, Harry and Walter Go to New York in 1975 and Tango and Cash in 1989 used the prison for some scenes. However, it was not until 1994, when the film crew for The Shawshank Redemption arrived, that film crews began to realize that the Ohio State Reformatory was the perfect setting for prison films. The facility was widely featured in the film with more than 30 scenes shot in the prison or on the grounds. Several years later, scenes from Air Force One were also filmed at the reformatory. In recent years, there have also been a number of music videos produced at the prison as well. 
the reformatory continued to decline for a time after it closed, but then, in an effort to save the place, the Mansfield Reformatory Preservation Society MRPS, was formed. Today, steps are underway to restore the remaining structure to its original condition. The building was added to the National Register of Historic Places, and the reformatory's six-tier east wing is listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's largest freestanding steel cell block. The MRPS continues its work today by offering guided tours and numerous events, and they have received several awards for their efforts to save this piece of Ohio history. Since the closing of the reformatory in 1990, stories have circulated that the prison is haunted by the tormented spirits of former inmates, guards, and prison officials who have simply never left. According to the legends, they are trapped here behind these decaying stone walls and rusted iron bars by the violent and painful events of their individual pasts. The horror and death of years past seem to be replaying itself behind the gates of the Ohio State Reformatory. Visitors who come here today become quickly aware that the cell blocks and corridors of the prison are not as empty and silent as they first appear to be. As recounted in the introduction to this book, I have had my own experiences at the Ohio State Reformatory. I have visited the place and spent entire nights inside of its walls on more than a dozen occasions, and I have truly come to believe that the place is haunted. My encounter in the former library was just one event that convinced me of this, and there have been others that were just as unnerving. And I'm far from the only person to interact with these spirits of this place. The hospital's infirmary is an area of the prison where strange experiences often occur. It was there that inmates were treated for influenza, tuberculosis, and a legion of other ailments and diseases caused by the poor conditions that plagued the prisoners. A number of men died of these illnesses during the years of the reformatory's operation, and some believe their ghosts may linger at the last place where they suffered during their lifetimes. It has often been reported that video cameras, recorders, and electronic equipment behave erratically in this area, and that shadows are often seen moving about in the dim light. It is a part of the prison where few want to venture alone. The prison's chapel is located just above the infirmary, and it has its own tales of ghosts and hauntings. The most commonly reported incidents there seem to involve a man who has been seen peeking around the doors and peering into the room. He always ducks away when someone notices him. At first, visitors believe this is a real person or someone from their own group hoping to play a trick on them. But when they check the other side of the door, they discover that no one is there. The prison's cell blocks have their own dark stories to tell. It was in these cells where the inmates lived, suffered, and sometimes died. Prisoners committed suicide, mutilated themselves, and committed horrific acts on one another. Beatings, stabbings, and rapes were not uncommon, and a brutal attack might be visited on another inmate for something as trivial as looking at someone the wrong way. Life in the reformatory could be agony, filled with hate, violence, and insanity. Many of these men carried these emotions with them to the grave, and their spirits, trapped within these walls, are still manifesting these feelings in death. The doors to the cell blocks may be standing open these days, but the spirits of the men who were once locked behind them 
remain imprisoned behind the rusted bars. The lowest levels of the reformatory are perhaps the most frightening to visitors who come to the reformatory today. The basement is a maze of dark, twisted hallways and rumors persist that inmates were sometimes brought here to be beaten and tortured by guards. A number of people claim to have seen the ghost of a young inmate allegedly beaten to death wandering the dark hallways of the basement. The boy always vanishes or runs away after he's noticed. But perhaps the most sinister location in the old prison is the infamous hole. There is no record of just how many prisoners were subjected to the terrifying conditions of this part of the prison, where they were jailed in total darkness and forced to sleep on bare concrete floors, or how many of them have been left behind as restless spirits. The hole is a place that saw the darkest side of human nature and the most violent acts carried out within the reformatory's walls. One does not need to have any psychic abilities to feel the intense energies of this area. Those who visit the hole say they feel goosebumps cold chills and on many occasions become violently sick to their stomachs. Is it merely their imagination, sent into an overactive state because of the dark stories that are told about this place? Perhaps. But if so, how do we explain the strange cries that have been recorded in these cells, the tapping footsteps, and the unshakable feeling of being watched? The history that has been imprinted on the stone walls of this dank part of the prison seem to be making its presence known to a great many people who dare to come to this spot. One of the most tragic events to occur during the reformatory's history and which has left a haunting presence behind took place on November 5, 1950 in the administration wing of the prison. One section of this wing contained the home and offices of Warden Arthur L. Glotke, his wife Helen, and their sons Arthur Jr. and Teddy. Warden Glotke was one of the most respected officials in the reformatory's history. By all accounts, Glotke was well-liked by guards and prisoners alike. He instituted a series of reforms and was credited with piping radio music into the cells of the inmates. On November 5, a Sunday morning, Mrs. Glotke was in her bedroom alone and was getting dressed to go out. It was believed that she reached up into a high shelf in her closet trying to get her jewelry box and moved a 32 caliber pistol out of her way. The gun had been placed in the residence for the family's protection. Dr. P. A. Stute, the attending physician, believed that Helen may have dropped the pistol as it slipped out of her hands and hit the floor. It went off. The bullet struck her in the chest and penetrated her left lung. When Warden Glotke heard the shot, he ran to the bedroom and discovered Helen bleeding on the floor. He summoned the reformatory physician, Dr. J. V. Horst, who, unable to treat her on site, had Mrs. Glotke rushed to the general hospital. She never regained consciousness and died during the early morning hours of Tuesday, November 7. While rumors have swirled that there may have been more to her death than was originally reported, this does not seem to be the case. The death of Helen Glotke was a tragic, horrible accident that separated two young boys from their beloved mother. This may be the reason that her ghost is believed to linger behind in the administration wing. Tragically, just nine years after Helen's death, Arthur Glotke died of a heart attack in his office, just steps away 
from where his wife died in 1950. It is believed that the ghosts of both Mr. and Mrs. Glocke haunt the reformatory. At certain times, visitors have reported feeling cold rushes of air in the administration wing, and equipment failures are also common in these still-preserved rooms. The pink bathroom located in this wing is a spot where the ghost of Helen Glotke is said to be most often making her presence known through the smell of perfume and the scent of fresh flowers. Whichever of the Glotkes, if their ghosts truly linger, remain behind in their old apartment, I've seen firsthand how they can occasionally make their presence known. One night in 2012, I was spending the night at the Ohio State Reformatory with my friends, Chris and Angela Settles, and a group of other ghost researchers. While we were quietly exploring the administration building's apartment, we were disturbed by a distinctive metal clicking sound, which echoed loudly in the empty room that we were standing in the same room where Mrs. Glotke had been shot when the pistol fell from the high closet shelf. All three of us searched the room, listening closely and trying to discover the source of the metallic sound. We found it at a window just a few steps away from the leaning closet door. The wooden window frame had a metal lock on the top of the lower frame. By twisting it counterclockwise, the window could be locked, which would make it impossible to be raised. As we stood there watching, all three of us saw that metal lock turning rapidly back and forth, locking and unlocking, even though no one was touching it at the time. The lock twisted back and forth, twisting and turning over and over for nearly a minute before it stopped in front of our startled eyes. Whatever had been in that room that night, it certainly wanted to get our attention. The Ohio State Reformatory can be a physically and mentally exhausting place. There are seemingly miles of rooms, offices, corridors, and cell blocks to be explored, and it's not a place for the faint of heart. Unexplained occurrences continue to this day and give evidence to the fact that sometimes escape simply isn't possible, even after death. to work closing in a pretty big arts and crafts store as a cashier and occasional floor employee. I was working a normal night shift when my manager radioed all of us and told us to keep an eye on the man that had just walked into the store. From my manager's description, he looked like he was homeless as he wore dirty, tattered clothing, and it looked like he had been wandering the streets for months without food. He wandered around the store, and we had in-house security tail him as he just walked through each aisle. He eventually got to the aisle where I was, busy restocking, cleaning up, and he just stood there staring at me. I instantly had an uneasy feeling, but not trying to be mean and judgmental. I turned to look at him and gave him a half-smile and nod. I returned to my task with that uneasy feeling still in me when I turned again to notice that he had walked closer to me. That moment I looked at him, he stood still. No movement, 
I gulped and continued to work, this time faster so I could quickly move to the next aisle as I was nearly done with the one I was in. But then I smelled him. It was an awful stench. It seemed as if he hadn't showered for days and decided to roll around in fresh feces for sport. I bit my tongue to stop myself from making a disgusted facial expression when I smiled and asked him if he needed any help. Silence. No movement. He continued staring for what seemed like an eternity. And that was when I was able to see what he looked like. His eyes and cheeks were sunken in, but it was hard to immediately notice from his long, golden brown hair that covered his face. He had absolutely no expression on his face, but what scared me the most was his eyes. They were a beautiful shade of blue, but there was nothing in them. No emotion. It was as if I was looking into the eyes of a porcelain doll. I was at a loss for words and frozen in fear until I was finally able to focus as my manager spoke to me via my radio. He was conveniently sitting in his office watching the security cameras and saw the man and I staring at each other. I took this opportunity to excuse myself and quickly rush into my manager's office. I asked my manager if I could stay in the office until the man left since I was uncomfortable, but I was told to get back onto the sales floor since I was still on the clock. I begged him to let me stay in the back for 10 minutes so I could collect myself, but once again, I was told to go out. I sighed and went back out and continued my work. Barely five minutes in, the stench came back, and I turned around to see the same man just a few feet away from me. I flinched and stumbled back, hitting my arm on one of the shelves as I tried to regain my balance. Once again, he just continued staring at me. I'm sorry, did you need any help? I expected no answer like before, but this time, he spoke up. You can see me, he asked still showing no expression on his face. I stared at him in confusion and nodded when he rushed towards me and started screaming in my face. Who the fuck are you? He reached out to grab my arms, but I slapped them away and shuffled backwards in fear. He began knocking the items off the shelves and throwing them in my direction while still screaming bloody murder. Why did you kill me? A crowd had emerged and I told everyone to stay back or to leave because it was obvious that this man had gone crazy and was directing his anger towards me. Security had finally arrived and subdued the man, but he was still screaming. Most of it was incoherent, but it was along the lines of him being dead and that I was the one that killed him. I was in tears at this point, because even though he was screaming and kicking, his eyes still had absolutely no emotion in them. This was the first time I had actually feared for my life. He ended up biting one of the security and rushed out the store, knocking down my freshly decorated display. Security attempted to chase him down, but he had ran so quickly that they lost him shortly after he left the parking lot. I had my co-workers escort me to our break room and console me while I called my mom to pick me up, since I didn't drive at the time. My manager came into the room shortly after and told me I should have managed the situation better. As I was still crying, I asked if I could just go home since I wasn't in the right mind to continue working. 
He told me that as I was scheduled to stay until closing, I had to stay. Needless to say, I immediately quit right then and there and walked out the moment my mom was outside. Since I never went back, I never found out about what happened to that man and if he ever came back, but honestly, I'm glad that I didn't come in contact with that man ever again. Thanks for listening to this Weekend Archive episode of Weird Darkness. If you like what you hear and you want to hear even more, consider becoming a patron. I post patron-only content and bonus materials as well, including chapters of horror and paranormal books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them. Become a patron by clicking the link in the show notes, or visit WeirdDarkness.com and click on Become a Patron. If you did like the episode, please share a link to this episode with a couple of your friends and leave a rating and review of the show in the podcast app that you're using right now. I might read your review here in the podcast. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. Find me on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and more. I've got links to all of my social media at the top of the page at WeirdDarkness.com. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me for this special Weekend Archives episode of Weird Darkness. Most of us feel safe in our homes. We consider it to be secure, putting us at ease when we reside there. It's that feeling that makes it a home instead of just a house. But what if the security your home offers is a lie? What if you discover you are not the only one residing in your place of residence, that someone else is living literally within the walls without your consent? In the audiobook, Murderous Minds, Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escaped the Headlines, Volume 5, you'll hear terrifying true stories from post-World War Germany to 1930s Hollywood to modern-day Massachusetts that share the fates of individuals and families who missed critical details in their homes, oversights resulting in deadly consequences. Murderous Minds, Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escaped the Headlines, Volume 5, written by Kelly Gaines and Ryan Becker, narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. Here are a free sample of the audiobook by clicking the link on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. <laughs>